You're about to hear a message that was preached at Calvary Fellowship in Miramar, Florida. At Calvary, we exist to help people take their next step with God. And we pray that this message helps you do just that. How's everybody doing? Hey, we are really glad that you're here. And uh, so, by the way, didn't Trinity do a great job last week? That was such a good message. So, so glad for him to be here. So I was out last week. Uh, I was in Orlando. I was here at the service, but I, for most of the week I was in Orlando uh, speaking at an event for pastors from all over the country. It was amazing. And uh, my two favorite groups to speak to is to speak to you and to speak to pastors. Those are always my favorite things. So, but I took my family with me because uh, we were able to get a couple of days off in the middle of all that kind of mixed in. And the last night that we were there, uh, we went to the boardwalk, which if you've been around Calvary, you know, I always say that, that that's kind of been our tradition forever as a family. Whenever uh, our last night is we go to the boardwalk because behind that resort, they have all these restaurants and games and whatever. So we did that. And so we went to this place that was there that they had to make these really good nachos. And so we were eating nachos. And I was telling the kids this story that they were too young to remember, but it was about 11 years ago. We were on a family vacation to uh, Disney World. Carrie was pregnant with Olivia. Xander was about two and Mia was four, four and a half maybe. And uh, so the last day that we were there, we rented... um, uh, at, at the boardwalk, they have these, you know, those Surrey bikes that they sell. It's like kind of those tandem bikes, four people all pedaling, you know, at the same time. So we rented one of those bikes. And uh, the cool thing about where that hotel is, is that it's around this lake and there's a bunch of resorts around that lake. And so it's about a mile all the way around. And so they have a little trail for you to follow. And uh, so it's a ton of fun. So the kids were too young to pedal, but we put them in the, the front. They had this little spot for kids to sit. And then Carrie and I, uh, we're there, we're, we're, we're pedaling the bike. So, um, so we start and when we get there, we kind of get up to this first hill and it's a little tough, but Carrie and I both pedaling, we get to the top of the hill and then you kind of make your way down, you pick up the momentum. Then there's this tougher hill towards the end and we really go for it and, uh, we finally make it and then the, we get back and I'm, you know, so we do one trip around and I'm like, all right guys, you know, thanks for, thanks for, uh, driving with us, put your tray tables in the upright position, we're out. And, uh, and they're like, you know, no, let's go one more time. And Mia is like, one more time, one more time. Xander's too, he's not talking yet, and he's going, <laughs> you know, so he's kind of giving his two cents. So I'm like, all right, that's fine. And so um, we start making our way up, and Mia's like, faster, faster. I'm like, Mia, my legs are on fire. They can't go any faster. So we hit the first hill, and uh, and and. and Carrie says, Bob, I'm sorry, I'm pregnant. I can't pedal anymore. So she stops pedaling. So now there's three passengers. The only person pedaling is me. And so I, I, I barely make it up the, top, the hill. And then I start thinking, I don't know how I'm going to make it when I hit the second hill, which is even steeper. So we get down this hill, we get the momentum going, everybody's, there's this little bell and the kids are ringing the bell and all that, so, and, uh, which I think is more to let pedestrians know not to get murdered, uh, but uh, so, because we're going pretty fast. Then we get to the second hill and we get about a quarter of the way up and I can't, I, I mean, I'm just, and, 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 and so I can't do it. And then Carrie's like, oh, I'll start pedaling. She starts, and she's like, I can't. She's like, Bob, I'm gonna get off um, the bike so, and I'll just walk up the hill so that you can do it. I'm like, but honey, you're pregnant. You know what? Get off. And, um, and so she gets off, but I still can't make it up the hill. Now, if this were being made into a major motion picture, this would be the moment where the music would kind of go to a minor key. And then you'd be, there'd be like a close up on my feet and the pedals, they'd start going backwards a little bit. Cause that's what was happening. I'm, I'm, go- I'm going back. And then, um, I, I had this, 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 I, I can't even describe it. It's this incredible burst of energy that I had. And this is where the music would change to a major key. And then there'd be like a... So that would be doing... So it would be, it would be doing that, right? And so then, and I feel this, and I can't even describe it, this incredible burst of energy. And I start pedaling up this hill and I turn around to tell my wife, can you believe this? And my wife is pushing the bike <laughs> up the hill. And she, and, and I, and so, and I said, what I meant to say was, honey, don't do that. You're pregnant. 
what I actually said was, keep pushing. And so we make it up to the hill. Now to, by, by the way, dad with two kids, seven-month pregnant woman pushing the bike. It is like the worst optic ever. And then to make matters worse, at that moment, this family of four, mom, dad, and these two little blonde girls are all in their little bikes coming by. And then, and then the girl, one of the girls starts pointing at me. And she's like, mommy, why does the mean man make his pregnant wife push up? I'm like, don't you judge me. You don't know my story. And so, and it was, I mean, it, it was not, not, my, not my best moment. But listen, there was, I, I had a shot of espresso before I came up here. And uh, so... This message might be moving a little faster than, you might, than you're used to. But, but anyway, so, but I'm telling you, I, I would not have made it up that hill had my wife not intervened. And, and here's what, and, and, and listen, I may not know everything about your life, but here's what I can be sure of. If you're someone who knows God and walks with God, is that as you look back on your life, there have been moments that had it not been for God intervening in your life, you have no idea where you'd be. And so uh, when I look at my life and I look back on my life, I almost didn't enroll in Bible college and I felt called to ministry and I knew that I needed to get some kind of theological education. And I, I just, um, I, I, I wanted to sign up for Bible college. I was so nervous. And, and those of you that have been around Calvary, you know that I've told stories about what a terrible student I was in high school. And uh, if you don't know, let me just give you a little uh, snippet. Being a senior was the best two years of my life. So just to kind of let you know. Um, but I would get the application for a uh, Bible college here locally, and um, I would start filling it out, and then it would get to the part where I'd have to talk about high school, and, uh, and then I would just throw it in the garbage. The next semester would come around. I'd get the application. I'd start writing it out. I'd get to the same part and throw it out. I did this three semesters, so now we're going on more than a year. And um, I, I have a friend... Um, named George, uh, who, after my wife and I became Christians, um, he came to know Jesus shortly after. And, and so he says to me one day at church, he says, Bob, you ever thought about going to Bible college? And I'm like, yeah. And I told him, I'm like, man, I feel called to ministry, but I'm just, I didn't do well in high school. And the last thing I want to do is fail when it comes to learning the Bible. And so, and so he just said, um, now mind you, he's not in ministry. He is, he's an electrician. He's a journeyman electrician. Um, and he was back then and still is now. But he just said, um, he said, I, I don't know. He said, well, how about this? What if, if you, if you want, uh, why don't you fill out the application and I'll go with you? And he's like, I'll sign up too. And I'm like, you do that? And he's like, yeah, but I'm only going to audit because I love you, but I'm not writing term papers for you. And, uh, and so anyway, and so we both filled out the paperwork. That's how I got started. And so I look back and I think about graduating uh, with my theology degree and then uh, spending four and a half years as an associate pastor and then now almost 22 years as the pastor of this church. And that all happened, listen, as a result of one person just intervening in my life at, at a particular moment. And, and God just has this way of doing that, of altering a situation or circumstance into something else and making it amazing. And, and listen, if, if you are a follower of Jesus and you've walked with God for any length of time, then you know that. You know how God can speak a word through someone and, and change a circumstance and do the unexpected, that God can bring the right person into your life at the right moment and just change the entire trajectory of your life forever with just one encounter. And what I find so interesting is that most of the time, and this is, a lot, this is true a lot of the time, is that we're kind of oblivious to what God is doing until after the fact. Uh, what we're going to look at in, our, in the section of the Gospel of Matthew today, we're going to look at three stories that happen all in quick succession of three people that are doing whatever it takes to get to Jesus. And they've got to kind of fight to get to Jesus because they have come to this realization that there's nobody else who can fix it and there's nobody else who can make it better. And sometimes it takes us a little too long to come to that conclusion. And that there, there, there's, there is a wisdom in us knowing that we need God in our lives, that we need the power of God's spirit to work in us and that we're lost without him. And that knowledge, that knowledge causes us to run to God with a zeal and determination. And that's what we're gonna look at in our story today. Now, to back up a little bit, Jesus has given the Sermon on the Mount, his most famous sermon. He comes down from that 
hill, that, that, that mountain, uh, after giving the sermon, and he is at, you know, rising to the zenith of his popularity. Huge crowds are, are following him, and some of those people that are following him are people that have real needs, needs that they believe only Jesus can meet, and, and they make a choice, and this is the key, I think, for us. They make a choice to not let anything get in their way to keep them from Jesus, And so if you're here today and there's a need in your life, learn the lesson of these three people that we're going to look at. They don't let anything keep them from Jesus. And and if there is a need of something in your life that needs to be fixed, and you rightly believe that Jesus is the only one that can fix it, don't let anything keep you from him. Because these are the moments that can change our lives forever and just change the entire direction of our lives forever. Just one encounter with him. So we're going to start... In uh, Matthew chapter 9, we're going to start in verse 1. Here's what we read. It says, So he got into a boat, crossed over, and came to his own city, which is called Capernaum, by the way. And be- then, behold, <clears throat> they brought to him a paralytic lying on a bed. When, they saw, when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, Son, be of good cheer. Your sins are forgiven you. And at once, some of the critics said within themselves, This man blasphemes. But Jesus, knowing their thoughts, said, why do you think evil in your hearts? For which is easier to say, your sins are forgiven you, or to say, rise and walk. But that you may know that the Son of Man has power on earth to forgive sins. Then he said to the paralytic, arise, take up your bed, and go to your house. And he arose and departed to his house. Now when the multitude saw it, they marveled and glorified God who had given such power to men. If you pause there and give me your attention, three things that we're going to look at in particular. But the, the first is, is this, if you're a note taker, and that is that I need faithful friends when I'm in need. Now, we all have people that we hang out with, but that doesn't necessarily make them friends. And, and the problem that we have, at least in American culture, is that we have, uh, we throw the term friend around and the, the word has kind of lost all of its meaning. I mean, friendship is really a sacred thing, especially in the Hebrew culture that Jesus uh, was ministering in. Friendship was a sacred thing. It was not something to be taken lightly. Uh, Today, we meet someone three times. We call them our friend. Uh, We have people that we're friends with on Facebook that we actually can't even stand, right? I am friends with my mortal enemy from high school, and I still can't stand him. I'm not allowed to hate people because, you know, I'm a Christian, but I think there's a gray area of can't stand, so I'm, I'm rolling with that. But I, I really can't deal with this guy. And yet someone's like, oh, you know this? Is, yeah, we're friends. And it's like, but are we friends? You know, but in, in, um, in the Hebrew culture, friendship was a covenant. Friendship was something that was called, in Hebrew, it's called haverim, uh, or haver would be the, the singular, haverim would be friends. And it was, a, it was a, a brother-like bond that you had. It was something that you'd do anything for, and they would do anything for you. And every time I, I, I think about the term friendship, I always think of this one story in my life. Um, I had this friend in high school, and we were friends all through high school, and um, through, through, and we're still friends, but uh, part, part of the way through college, and then until uh, I became a Christian, and... Uh, that most of my friends disowned me. Um, but, I, uh, but he was an awesome guy, and we were in a band together and all that. But, um, and we, he lived across the street from me. But he had an earwax situation. Now, FYI, this is a disgusting story. So just, I want you to prepare yourself emotionally for what's about to transpire. And uh, if you brought, like, a little bag or something, you may want to just keep it handy. Um, so, now, this guy had so much earwax buildup he couldn't hear anything. For the first six months, when I started dating my wife, I introduced him, like, hey, this is my, this is my, my girlfriend, Carrie. He's like, oh, nice to meet you, Corey. And it's like, no, it's Carrie. Yeah, that's what I said, nice to meet you, Corey. I'm like, no, it's Carrie. Yeah, I, that's what I said, Corey. Anyway, and so this guy, it didn't matter. He couldn't hear anything. It, it, was, it was a mess. And so, well, one day, um, we were driving, my, my friend Al, who was probably my, my best friend in high school, uh, he, with some help from his parents, he bought a late 80s Camaro. Now, when it is the late 80s, like 89, 90, and you get like an 88 Camaro, you own the road. And wherever we're going, we're, we, wherever we're going, we're riding with you. I drove a 1981 uh, Volkswagen Rabbit diesel. 
and uh, that this was a, a total piece of junk and had all kinds of problems and nobody wanted to ride with me. And so, but we all wanted to ride with him. So anyway, we're going out that day in his, uh, in his Camaro. And so Al is driving. My friend Drew is in, the, is in the passenger seat. I am right behind Drew in the back seat. Craig, who's my earwax buddy, he's in the middle. My friend Jordy is on the other side. And so I, now the thing you got to know about late 80s sports cars, which if you're old enough, you remember, those back seats are tight. So I turn to say something to Craig. Now we're, it's three of us in the back seat. I turn to say something to him. I mean, I'm like six inches from his face. I start talking and my lips are like three inches from his ear canal. So I'm just like, like I turn, I'm like, hey, you know, and he's like, what? And I'm like, how is it possible? That I'm, I'm like speaking directly into his brain and he can't hear me. And so I'm like, that's it. And I say to Al, I'm like, Al, get out of this car. I want you to go, because we were parked in front of his house. We were leaving. I want you to go inside. I want you to, I want a bottle of rubbing alcohol and as many Q-tips as you can scrounge up. So he comes, he says, okay, he goes in the house. He grabs a bottle of rubbing alcohol and he grabs a handful of Q-tips and he hands it to me. And I'm like, we're doing business right now. And I just, we start going into this. 21 Q-tips later. It's done. Both sides. And my friend Jordy, who was on the other side, he was so moved viscerally by this, he opened the door and threw up. <laughs> now, in his defense, I did make him hold the used Q-tips when I was done. So that turned out to be an error in judgment on my part. Uh, but at that moment, from that moment on, Craig... You, if a pin dropped two towns over, he could hear it. And it, it, was, it was incredible. And so whenever someone asks me, you know, how would you define friendship? Here's how I define friendship. 21 Q-tips. That's how I define friendship. And so now, one of the things that makes this story so important of this paralytic coming to Jesus actually isn't even recorded in the Gospel of Matthew. Uh, instead, Mark and Luke give us this detail that I think is so important. So I'm going to read you a couple of verses out of the Gospel of Mark so you can catch this as we read the story. He says this, Immediately many gathered together so that there was no longer room to receive them, not even near the door. And he preached, that is Jesus, preached the word to them. Then they came to him bringing a paralytic, so there's the they, who's they, uh, bringing a paralytic who was carried by four men. This is them. And when they could not come near him because of the crowd, they uncovered the roof where he was. So when they had broken through, they let down the bed on which the paralytic was laying. Now, this is, this is incredible to me because one of the ways that God meets us when we're in need is through faithful friends who are there for us when other people aren't. Now, I know that we, oh, I have friends. Everybody has friends, right? But I'm talking about more than people we just hang out with or go to the movies with. Um, when I talk to my kids, my three kids, about friends, I'm talking about quality friends. I'm talking about people that are going to help me make right choices in life. And I want you to think about this scene. The house is so packed with people that this guy's friends, they go up the stairs on the side of the house. And by the way, this is very common. Uh, it's still common in Israel today and in the Middle East as it was back then, is that the roofs were flat. And so in the cool part of the day, people would go up. And so the roof was kind of used like a patio. And so because there was no room in the house, they take the four guys, take their friends up the stairs to the roof and then rip a hole. That part's not common. And they're like, hey, would you guys like a sunroof in your house? Uh, because you're going to get one. And uh, they, they rip a hole in the roof and then drop this guy or lower, not drop, because uh, that involves a different healing, um, because that they lower the guy uh, just to get their friend to Jesus. And what happens is, is that sometimes we look on and we think about miracles and we just think like, well, there's just, just God's going to do it. And it's just, there's nothing I can do. And, and this story kind of presses on that a little bit and says, you know, miracles happen sometimes after we've really sought God, after we've really done everything that we possibly can do. And then God shows up and blesses our efforts beyond anything that we could imagine. Had these guys not ripped the roof off, I mean, I don't know if this guy would have been healed or not. And it wasn't ripping the roof tiles that healed him, it was, it was the faith of their friend saying, we're going to do whatever it takes to get our friend to Jesus. And, and listen, it was uh, the faith of his friends that caused, that's what Jesus was, was reacting to. 
And listen, if you don't have friends who are willing to rip roof tiles off for you to get to Jesus, you may have the wrong friends. Proverbs 18, it says this, that one who has unreliable friends soon comes to ruin. But there is a friend who sticks closer than a brother. What does that mean? It means that you cannot live a good life. You cannot live a blessed life if you don't pick wise friends. C.S. Lewis, uh, the author, said it this way. He said, the next best thing to being wise oneself is to live in a circle of those who are. Because friends are like gasoline. And they just propel you in what, whatever direction they're uh, headed in. And, and listen, I think about this, and, and I tell my kids this all the time, that um, to whatever degree God has blessed us and, and, uh, in, in life um, is because of the people we have surrounded ourselves with. Uh, friends that I had early on, and all my, it's amazing to me, all my friends serving the Lord, um, and that just said from the very beginning, we want to serve God, we want to do God's will above everything else. And that, their commitment was like gasoline in my own life. And the, the same thing is true for you as well. And, and because we want to be kind to everyone. We want to love everyone. But we've got to be careful as to who we call a friend and allow to speak into our lives because wherever they're headed, we are headed as well. Check out what happens next. It says this in verse 9. This is, Matthew's going to get a little autobiographical for us. He says, as Jesus passed, by, passed on from there, he, call, he saw a man named Matthew sitting at the tax office. And he said to him, follow me. And he arose and followed him. Now it happened as Jesus sat at the table in the house that behold, many tax collectors and sinners came and sat down with him and his disciples. And when the Pharisees saw it, they said to his disciples, why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? And when Jesus heard that, he said to them, those who are well have no need for a physician, but those who are sick. But go and learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice. For I did not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. If you pause there and give me your attention, second thing I want to tell you is that I need good influences when I'm in need. Now, um, you know how the, the ancient world was so different. You know how today we love the IRS and we love IRS agents in particular it wasn't like that in the ancient world. They, they didn't get it. They did not love to pay taxes like we do. And uh, you know how you fill out the form, you just get that nice feeling. You're like, man, I'm signed, but I know it's going to a good cause. You know, like when, you know, and so that's not how people felt in the ancient world. In the ancient world, tax collectors were hated. And they were hated for a few reasons, but I'll give you two in particular if you're a note taker. Number one, they were hated because they were conspiring with the enemy. Israel was under the occupation of Rome. And so these tax collectors worked raising funds for the Roman Empire. And some people estimate that the people in Israel were being taxed somewhere up to 90% of their income. And, uh, and they were still saying they weren't paying their fair share. And, um, and so, and if you read a book like uh, Will Durant is a historian, and he wrote a book called The Rise and Fall of the Roman Empire. And in his book, he says this, he says, Rome, the Empire of Rome fell for three reasons. High taxes, soaring inflation, and moral decay. But don't you worry, we're nothing like that. Uh, and then, uh, but the second thing, second reason why people hated tax collectors is that, uh, if you're a note taker, is that they made their living off extorting people. Only Rome and that individual tax collector knew how much in tax they needed to collect. So anything above what that quota was was their pay. And this is why tax collectors were so hated. It's also why they were so wealthy is because as much as they could uh, exact from people is how they were able to live. And in an era where people were starving, uh, this, this made them all the more hated. Tax collectors were not allowed in the temple because they were considered unclean. Uh, in fact, Alfred Edersheim, uh, who's a Jewish historian, he said that in that time, Jewish tax collectors were deemed on the same level as pigs, totally unclean. Uh, they were barred from synagogues to, to participate in worship. They were so hated, they couldn't even be a witness in a trial because they were considered people of ill repute. And so when Jesus is walking by the tax booth and sees Matthew and says, follow me, you got to understand the power of those two words. Um, like when someone gets married and they say, I do. If you, you know, just dropped in from another planet, like I do, I do what? 
but you, but you know this, that saying those two words, that means something because we understand culturally everything that it means. In that culture, when a rabbi said to someone, follow me, it was, it was the same thing. It was a rabbi who believed that what I teach, my interpretation of the law, I'm looking for students who are the best of the best. And I'm looking for people who can take what I have, I'm teaching about the Torah, they can take it and pass it on to someone else and live like it. When a, when a rabbi said to someone, follow me, he was saying, I believe that you can be like me. And I believe that you can take everything that I'm living and doing and that you can do it as well. It was a call to live like the rabbi. And so Matthew hears those words and he walks away from his career. He walks away from his livelihood. He walks away from the booth, but he was walking away from an entire life that he had built to start walking with Jesus. Now, and by the way, you know, it's something to think about. Do you think that having a former tax collector on your team made Jesus look better or worse in the eyes of the people there locally? Worse, right? Everybody hated these guys. And it's like, yeah, I hate that guy. Oh, he's on team Jesus now. Like, okay, can't stand, I'll live there. You know, I can't hate, but can't stand seems to be a gray area that I can live in. Um, and so what happens is, and I'm just glad that Jesus, he doesn't care what people think. He's saying, Matthew, follow me. This is gonna get a lot better. And, and now what we don't know, and we can only speculate is that is how much did Matthew know about Jesus? He had to have known something because some random rabbi walks up and says, follow me. I don't know that any rabbi could have just said that and that he was going to accept it. But living in Capernaum, which is Jesus's hometown, uh, where he based his ministry from, having either seen the miracles or heard about them, having probably heard the Sermon on the Mount as Jesus began his ministry, he knew enough that when Jesus spoke those two words from him, uh, to him, it was enough for him to leave everything behind and start following Jesus. Now, Matthew had such an experience with Jesus that he did what every person does when they have this experience with Jesus. They invite, he invites all of his friends to come experience Jesus as, as well. So that's why it says that he threw a party at a house. Now, uh, the gospel of Mark and Luke tell us that it was actually Matthew's house and that he invited other tax collectors and sinners. And I, I do find that funny because sometimes we think that it was like tax collectors and, um, and then sinners is like a catch-all term for like, you know, all these other, you know, people that are on the outskirts of society. But that's not the case. That, that term sinner is actually a technical term uh, for people who are committed to not being committed to God's law. They're just like, I have decided I am rejecting God's law completely live in my own way. And so Matthew's using his influence to invite his friends to know Jesus. But there's something important to note. And that is that Matthew is seeking to influence them. They're no longer influencing him. And in fact, we don't even ever read about Matthew hanging out with them after this point. It's the other disciples of Jesus that are influencing Matthew from this moment on. And this is, I think, the, an important point for us, is that the people who should be speaking into your life, the people who should be part of your inner circle are, are the people that you want to be more like, the people who are where you want to be in your life. And if the saying is true that we're the average of the five people we spend the most time with, then we've got to pick those five people wisely. Because influence, and you don't even realize it, but people are in, everything is influencing us. Whenever we go to Boston to visit my family, and, and uh, some of you know that I grew up in Boston, but whenever we go to visit my family in Boston, for however long or short the trip is, by the end of the trip, my wife starts dropping her R's, and she's parking the car and have it, yeah, praise the Lord, sin is wicked bad. If you don't believe me, ask your mother. And so, uh, and, and that's just, and she, does, she didn't grow up in Boston, but it's just, it's the power of influence. I grew up in Boston, and I actually spoke, I talked like that, thinking it was normal. And people are always say, like, I can't believe you grew up in Boston. You don't have the accent at all. How is that? I was like, well, God healed me. And, um, <laughs> and so, but here's the point, is that we don't go to Boston to change the way they speak. No, they start influencing us and changing the way we speak. And that is the danger of letting certain people into your life. And by the way, that doesn't mean you become a hermit, cut yourself off from every relationship with anybody who isn't a Christian. It's not a great strategy if you want to reach people. We've got to build relationships with people who aren't believers uh, because that's part of the Great Commission for the purposes of evangelism and, and seeing them draw close to God. And by the way, if someone didn't do that for us, we'd still be lost, right? If, if we weren't, um, if, if, if you're a believer here. But 
What I mean is, is simply being wise in your relationships and knowing who the people are that you should take counsel from, who the people are that should be speaking into your life, right? We want to minister to people and uh, help people draw close to Jesus, but we need to know the difference between people that we're helping and people who are speaking into our lives. And that's why Paul would say this in uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 15, do not be deceived. Evil company corrupts good habits. And this is why you've got to put yourself in environments where friendships can flourish. And this is why at Calvary, we talk about growth groups all the time, people getting into groups. And uh, we talk about serving all the time. Because here's what I know, and this is kind of, um, I, and this, is a, this is a generality, right? But typically, what happens is, uh, in a small group setting, uh, women are like, oh, that sounds, you know, just a bunch of people in a circle talking about scripture or talking about what's going on there. That sounds very good. And then a guy hears that. And sometimes he thinks, so what, what, do, you, what, do, you, what do you mean? A guy, what, what are we doing in a circle? And it's like, well, we're just going to talk to each other. Just look each other in the eye. Oh, no. And just staring into my soul. How is your soul, brother? Tell me more. You know, and it's just like, that sounds horrifying to some guys. Like, I don't want anybody staring into my soul. And, uh, and, and so, and what happens is with guys, and once again, this was true in my own life, um, when, when I started going to church and they were like, hey, you should get involved in a, in, in, in a small group. I was like, I don't know, what does that even mean? And I just, I'm gonna, you know, I don't know how I feel about that. And then somebody said, um, hey, you know, we would, would you mind just showing up at 6.30 in the morning on Sunday and helping set up chairs? Like, I can set up chairs. Is anybody going to like try to gaze into my soul? They're like, like at 6.30, nobody cares about your soul. They just need the chairs set up. And I'm like, okay, we're on the, we're on the same page here. And here's the thing that happened is that I started serving and I started meeting other guys that were just like normal guys. And they just started, they had come to know Jesus and they're just trying to navigate life. And you know, how do you deal with this situation, that situation? And the thing that was amazing is, is that in the process of doing something, setting up tables and chairs for a couple hours every Sunday, I started building friendships, some of them that last to this day. And it was because we were serving together. And then we started talking about real things in the process. And that's why, especially for guys, if you're like, man, if, I'm, if you're a little nervous about getting into a group, then just start doing something here at church. And you're going to meet people who are headed in the same direction that you're heading. And this is the thing. And so if you grab your connection card, um, I had one here. Oh, wait, there it is. So if you grab your connection card on the back, it says, sign me up to serve. And this is, this is true for everybody, but... And if you want to get, know what's going to happen with groups, uh, just put send me info on growth groups. We'll get you info because they're starting in uh, about six weeks or so. But if you want to sign up to serve, here's what I'd encourage you to do. Look at the list and say, where would I, where would I like to serve? Now, let me tell you what, has, what happens. And if you grew up in church, then you know this. If you didn't, then don't worry about it. But um, what happens sometimes is you sign up to serve and then you get put in a room. And they're like, hey, we're going to put you in a room to, with these toddlers. Like, okay, and you're going to serve here every week until Jesus comes back <laughs> or you die, whichever happens first. But this is where you are forever, all right? So now, that's not how we do it. When you decide you want to serve, what we do is we'll say, hey, you want to serve? Great. You're going to meet with the person who oversees that. And we're going to say, where would you like to serve? And then you're going to say, you'll say, hey, I want to serve with kids. We're like, all right, that sounds great. And then we do a background check on you to make sure that you don't kill people in off hours. And um, we, we really do that, that check. We actually do it um, every six months because maybe you start serving and then you decided to take up the hobby of killing people. We decide to just like, hey, let's just make sure they didn't decide to start their homicidal hobby. Anyway, so what we do is, is that, so you, we go through the background check and then you start serving. And then we say, hey, all right, we're going to give you this 30 days. And then you're going to hear from us. And you're going to tell us if you like this. And if you don't like it, it's okay. Because, you know, sometimes people serve. And we have an amazing team that serves in our children's ministry. Um, and our point is we want to keep it amazing. We don't want people who don't like kids to serve there. And so, because so, sometimes people serve and they're like, hey, I served in um, the toddlers. And I realize now after serving there twice, I don't even want to have children of my own. <laughs> And uh, so let's do something else. And so what we do is and then we just, we move you um, and we just like, hey, this is, we're just trying to uh, get you to the place where you serve something, serve somewhere that you like, because our goal is never 
just to fill the spot. Our goal is for you to serve somewhere that is so life-giving for you that you just enjoy it so much. You just can't wait until it's your turn to serve again. And that's really our goal when, when, you're, when you're serving. And so once again, when you check off to serve, wherever you decide to check off, that's not a guarantee that you're gonna be there forever. It's like, hey, I'd like to stick my toe in this end of the pool and then we'll see how that goes. And if not, we're gonna do our best for you uh, to, to find your place. But here, here is the point, is that if you will talk to someone who is spiritually mature, you talk to somebody that's been walking with God for a while, every person that is spiritually mature has a story of meeting people or meeting a group of people. And sometimes it's in a class or at a retreat or sometimes uh, it's in a group or sometimes it's serving at church. But there's always a story of meeting a person, meeting a group of people, and that person or that group catapulted their faith to new levels. Well, Jesus tells them that. And then look at what happens in verse 18. He says, and while he spoke these things to them, behold, a ruler, and uh, the Greek word there is archon, which means that this ruler, he was the highest ranking synagogue official. So this, in the entire city of Capernaum, this was the highest synagogue ruler. Uh, he, he was the leader of the synagogue. So this is a pretty important guy. So a ruler came and worshiped him saying, my daughter has just died, but come and lay your hand on her and she will live. And so Jesus arose and followed him, and so did his disciples. And suddenly a woman who had a flow of blood for 12 years came from behind and touched the hem of his garment. For she said to herself, if only I may touch his garment, I shall be made well. But Jesus turned around, and when he saw her, said, be of good cheer, daughter, your faith has made you well. And the woman was made well from that hour. And when Jesus came to the ruler's house, and saw the flute players and the noisy crowd wailing, he said to them, make room for the girl is not dead, but sleeping. And they ridiculed him. But when the crowd was put outside, he went in, took her by the hand, and the girl arose. And the report of this went out to all that land. If you pause there and give me your attention, last thing I want to tell you, and that is that I need to reach Jesus when I'm in need. Now, there's some powerful things that happen in this story that I don't want us to miss. There's some parallels. This woman has an issue of blood for 12 years. According to the Gospel of Mark chapter 5, the girl who had died was 12 years old. As long as this girl had been alive, this woman had an issue of blood. Uh, Luke chapter 8 tells us that the ruler's name is Jairus and that Jairus says, if you will lay your hand on her, she'll be made clean. But the woman says this, the woman with the issue of blood says, if I could lay my hand on him, I'll be made well. And so what is this hem of his garment? I mean, what, what does that mean? The, the, her saying the hem of his garment proves that this woman believed something about Jesus and her desire to touch that hem uh, said that she believed uh, who Jesus was. Now, let me, uh, let me explain it this way. So uh, what I have here is a traditional uh, Jewish uh, prayer shawl. So I bought this when I was in Israel uh, several years ago. And so the, um, the shawl, it's always kind of blue and, and white. Um, it has these tassels on the ends. According to Numbers chapter 15, they're, they're made a certain way. And um, the fringes, like what you see here on the end, the fringes are called the sidzi, uh, which in Hebrew is T-Z-I-T-Z-I-T. -Z -Z so it's sidzi. If you're from Alabama, it's T-Z-Z-Z-Z. And um, <laughs> now, the borders of the shawl are called the kanaf, and, uh, which, which means borders or also means wings. So at the end of a synagogue service, when the rabbi would lift his hands to give the blessing of Aaron to the people. You can see why this came to be known, the borders came to be known as wings uh, because of what it would look like when uh, the rabbi would give the blessing to the people. Now, I love this story so much because uh, Mark's gospel gives us a little detail is that, now mind you, crowds, are, huge crowds are following Jesus. And he's trying to go to Jairus' house to heal Jairus' daughter. And there's people pressing him from all sides. And then he stops and he says, someone touched me. And uh, I felt power leave for me. And the guy, the disciples are like, what are you talking about? There's people everywhere. It's like a mosh pit. Uh, how do we know like someone touched me? And it's like this, uh, it's like this, I don't know, uh, you know, Obi-Wan Kenobi element, you know, who touched me? These aren't the droids you're looking for. You want to go home and rethink your life. And so, uh, so anyway, 
So what was this woman reaching for? She's reaching, she's reaching for the tzitzit. She's reaching for the kanaf, the hem of Jesus' garment. Now Luke gives us a touch more detail. Let me read it to you. This is in Luke chapter 8. It says, Now a woman having a flow of blood for 12 years who had spent all her livelihood on physicians and could not be healed by any, came from behind and touched the border of his garment and immediately her flow of blood stopped. Now, this tells us that because of this issue, this flow of blood that would not stop, she was ceremonially unclean. Uh, she couldn't participate in temple or synagogue services because of this hemorrhage. And she was essentially living a life of isolation. Now Luke records, not surprising because Luke was a doctor, that this woman had spent everything she had on physicians but to no avail. But she says, if I could touch the hem of his garment, I'll be made well. Why is that? Because she believed something about Jesus. She believed something about Jesus that had to do with the very last prophecy that's given in the Old Testament. In the book of Malachi, the final book of the Old Testament, in the final chapter of the Old Testament, in the final verses of the final chapter of the final book of the Old Testament, there's this little prophecy that's given. In Malachi chapter 4, and here's what it says, But to you who fear my name, the son of righteousness shall arise with healing in his kanaf, in his wings. Now, because of this verse, the rabbis taught that you would know who the Messiah was because he would have healing in his kanaf, that you could touch the ends of his shawl and he, you could be healed. This woman believed that Jesus was the Messiah and that he was the only one who could make her whole. And this woman experienced physical healing. But in Malachi chapter 4, verse 5, in that same prophecy, God talks about reuniting fathers and sons, speaking about healing of relationships. In chapter uh, three, uh, chapter 4, verse 3, God talks about giving his people victory in their lives, talking about emotional healing, talking about healing from addictions. And here's the point, is that God wants to work in your life. But for God to work in your life, you've got to decide that he's the one who can transform you, that he's the one that can heal you, that he's the one that can heal your situation. And he invites us to take a step in his direction, not because he's waiting for us to make the first move, but because he's already there waiting for us. That's why when James says, draw near to God and he'll draw near to you, God's already desiring to be near. God's already taken the first step. We've just got to decide if we want to be close to him. Listen, some of us, have gone to everyone else and come up empty. Some of us have spent everything we have and money we don't have to fix it and come up empty. And some of us have gone from relationship to relationship, from addiction to addiction, from shiny new object to shiny new object, and we're still not better. But what if today, what if today we decided that there's healing in his wings? What if today was the day that we decided that he really is the only one who can make us well? If we touch the hem of his garment, believing that he really is the one. That he really is the one true God who can transform and change everything if we'll come to him. So I'm going to invite all of us to stand if you would. You see, if we really believe that, that we want to touch the hem of his garment because we really believe that he is the only one, the only one that can heal it, the only one that can fix it, the only one that can transform it, the only one that can move it. Then he's the one that can take the broken pieces in our lives and turn that mess that we've experienced and turn it into something beautiful. And if that's the case, then the desire to reach the hem of his garment would be the decision that changes everything. And if that's the case, then he's bringing healing in his wings and he's bringing restoration in his wings. He's bringing forgiveness in his wings and a new life is in his wings. And all of that is available to us. We've just got to decide if we really believe that he's the one. And if he is, and we take a step in his direction, then listen, he'll meet us and everything will begin to change. Everything will begin to change in us. And once it starts to change in us, it starts to affect everything around us. So here comes the question then is, 
Do you believe he's the one? And are you willing to fight to get to him? In a moment, the band is going to begin to sing. And here's what I want to invite you to do. If you say, I believe he's the one and I need him to change it. I need him to fix it. I need him to heal it. I need him to transform it. And today has to be the day. Then in, the, in a minute when the band begins to sing, here's what I want you to do from wherever it is that you're standing. I want you to meet me here at the edge of this stage. Because we're saying there really is healing and transformation and forgiveness and mercy and grace in his wings. And listen, if it is, and you believe that, we're going to pray together and call out together and that he's going to do what only he can do in our lives. So if you're saying, Pastor, that's me and I need to be up there because I want God to change my life. I want to leave this place different than how I came in. If that's the case, then this is your moment. This is your moment to reach the hem of his garment and say, I know that he can make me well if I can reach him. This is your moment to reach him. So let's walk together and see it happen. If you're ready, meet me here. George, lead us. Amazing decision. Amazing decision. And listen, if you're still, if you're wrestling, and I get it if you're wrestling, what my hope is is that however you're wrestling, you just don't let someone other than Jesus win the match. Because if you're wrestling and you're like, I, I really need to be up there, and I don't know what's holding me back, listen, um, I mean, what do you have to lose? Right now, everything stays the same, but what if you just add one element, you add Jesus into the mix of your life. And now everything begins to change. And so instead of saying, I should have been up there and driving home with one more regret, instead, why don't you just say, hey, I'm just, Jesus, I'm just gonna reach out for you because I believe you can make me well. I believe you can transform my life. I believe you can make the future different than my past or my present. So listen, the band is not gonna sing one more time. But this is if you believe you're supposed to be here. Maybe you got to be like the four friends. Maybe you brought a friend to church. And just tell them, hey, if you want to go up there, I'm going to go up there with you. Let's do this together. That's a real friend who wants to love you into the kingdom of God. So if that's you, listen, I just want you to come up right now. This is your moment. absolutely sure there's somebody and I don't ever do this I am absolutely sure there's somebody and I'm gonna move on yeah God bless you yeah God bless you yeah come on up we're gonna wait for you yeah yeah great decision great decision I really believe. Yeah. Yeah, God bless you. When we're told to draw near to God, God would draw near to you. He's waiting. He's waiting for us. That woman reached out. Jesus was passing by. 
That wasn't an accident. That was simply her moment. And she didn't let the moment pass her by. And I think that that's what makes the story so powerful is that she did whatever it took to get to him because she was convinced that this was her moment. And so, here's what I want to do. I want to pray for you. And then I want to lead you in a simple prayer. It's not a magic formula. It's nothing like that. But what I pray is that it expresses your heart to God in this moment. And here's what I know, that when we pray in sincerity, that God will hear us, that God will answer and act and change us from this day forward. So church, let's pray together. And Lord, we want to thank you. Thank you that you love us and that you hear us and you just don't leave us to figure it out. But you make yourself available to us and reach out to us. And now, God, this is our moment, reaching for the hem of your garment, saying, we know that if we can reach you, that we can be made well. Thank you that you've made it so simple for us to know you and be forgiven by you. And Lord, I pray for these that have come forward and that this would be their moment that would transform their life forever. Those of you that have come forward, I want to invite you to repeat this prayer with me out loud that all of heaven and earth hears it. We're all going to pray it out loud together. Say, dear God, I come to you today and I'm sorry for all I've done wrong. But I thank you for Jesus who died for me that I might have life. I want to walk with you starting right now in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Yeah. Thanks for listening to today's podcast. If today you made a decision to follow Jesus, congratulations. It's one of the best decisions you've ever made. And we as a church want to help you with your next steps. You see, we have a free gift we'd like to give you. And in order for you to receive that gift, all you have to do is visit mycalvary.com forward slash begin. Don't forget to tune in next week for our next podcast. God bless you.